0: The challenge is figuring out like, what do you know better than most people? And how can you present that in a way that your audience will want to hear it and then keep doing that thing once you figure
1: it out. Snackable content from brand builders, e-commerce and growth marketing leaders, giving you actionable insights. You can apply today bite-sized podcast with Daniel James. So. For anybody who's been listening to Bite Size for some time, creative being the variable is a statement largely agreed upon by myself and most of my guests, whether that's a brand founder or a marketer. And let's break down what effective marketing is. It's images, videos, copy, structured in a way to drive an action. To develop a creative that drives action, you have to understand creative performance and use that as a feedback loop into your creative strategy, your media buying, your creative optimization teams. At Fly Performance, we use Motion. So Motion is a creative reporting platform that visualizes creative performance and uses really easy to understand metrics that are mapped to the consumer funnel. So from thumb stop ratio to ROAS, making it so easy to understand not just performance, but where you need to optimize. Not only that, it's a huge time saver. We estimated that since using Motion across the agency, we've saved our teams two days a week from manual data pools. Allowing them to test and analyze creative far more efficiently, and get winning creatives, and really help drive performance. Creative is the variable. Welcome back to Bite Size. We're in season two now, so thank you to everybody who's listened and subscribed and shared and commented so far. Uh, really appreciate the support. It's increasing my anticipation of what's possible with the with the podcast. Uh, down to all the positive feedback. So I uh, just want to say a quick thank you before we dive in and. I'm really excited today, it's it's a, a change of pace from brand owners and growth marketers. We have Robert Freund on, on Bite Size today who has become somewhat famous, if I may say so, in the world of e-commerce and social media advertising as being the guy who understands the litigation and the policies and the rules behind what you can and can't do on these platforms. So uh, Robert, welcome to the podcast, uh, for anyone who doesn't know you. Um, Give us a bit of background about you. Tell me your five minute career story, kind of where you started and and what you're currently doing. Sure, I'm an advertising and
0: e-commerce attorney based here in LA. I've been practicing, I think this is my 11th year. For the first almost seven years of my career, I started at a big law firm called Greenberg Traurig, also here in LA. And I was doing commercial litigation. And most of the cases I was involved with were defending brands and other businesses from false advertising claims that were brought as class actions. And so that was my exposure to the world of advertising litigation and compliance and regulation and so forth. In 2019, I left to start my own practice with the goal of getting away from litigation and moving more towards helping brands and agencies and individual creators avoid those sorts of cases I was involved in in the first place. And, and I do that through auditing marketing materials, making sure contracts are appropriately protecting the client, things of that nature, and hopefully help clients keep their money rather than spend them on uh, attorney's fees for litigation and things like
1: that. Amazing. And like I said, you're somewhat known as the guy, right? On social media. You've built up a bit of a personal brand. Obviously, you you understand the world of marketing and advertising. So has that been like a really conscious decision to establish yourself as like a thought leader and, and kind of authority in that space through building your your personal brand by putting out, you know, what is really valuable and often unknown information right on your on your social platforms it's sort of evolved over time when i when i started my practice
0: it's not like i had a a book of business to bring over from that big firm because it's it's very hard to do as an associate because the sorts of clients you serve at firms like that are huge corporations and it's it's rare to have the kind of connection like that so i knew that i needed to market myself somehow uh, I didn't know exactly how to do it, but someone at, at an event that I was at when I first started my practice sometime in 2019 asked me about what I did. I explained my advertising focus and he asked to see my social media pages. And at the time, my Instagram was just like a placeholder. There was no content on it at all. And he said, well, look, if you're, if you're in this area, you need to have a better presence than that check out this guy, the CPA, his name's Tyler McBroom. He's got close to a million followers now, I think. And this guy I was chatting with was like, Tyler creates one minute videos of common questions that come up for tax planning for businesses and stuff like that. And so initially I was just sort of modeling what I was putting out there on Tyler McBroom's model, like one minute quick, here's something I see a lot, here's the issue, here's how you can avoid it. And that... Started that was helpful in growing my Instagram presence. From then I started adding in summaries of interesting news that's relevant to what I talk about, like this brand got sued or this celebrity's in trouble for this thing and try to leave some sort of lesson at the end, like, hey, to avoid this or here's how they could have avoided it. So I think through the mix of educational and also somewhat entertaining content, that's that's been what works for me um, on Instagram and Twitter. And it's like, I think with any personal brand growing, it's a combination of being consistent about putting stuff out there. And then also a a little bit of luck, you know, one or two big accounts that's in your area that you're trying to reach. If they start resharing your stuff, you can get sort of a snowball effect from there. And that's what happened for me and what thankfully
1: continues to happen. So there's like a critical mass after which you just, you're established. No, I'm I'm all about building personal brands. It's these days, if you know, if you've got information to share, like it's so, I say easy. It's not easy to create the content. It's difficult in some ways, but like the distribution opportunity right through all these different social channels is like it's, it's wild that that's available to people for free yeah it,
0: the challenge is standing out but the there's almost no barrier to entry and i don't i don't spend any money on marketing which is nice i can spend that budget on other things and yeah the challenge is figuring out like what do you know better than most people and how can you present that in a way that your audience will want to hear it and then keep doing that thing once you
1: figure it out yeah for sure question I really want to know is just how common is litigation in the world of advertising and marketing? Uh, It's
0: incredibly common. I mean, on a daily basis, I don't know the numbers because I I don't have access to like every state court's docket, but to get a sense of the activity and, and part of my content strategy is I have these alerts set up through Research platforms that will notify me anytime a lawsuit's been filed in a certain jurisdiction with a certain like keyword. So, subscription or false advertising or something like that. And I get these digests coming in all day. And so, I mean, it's just constant. And if you're in business long enough, litigation is just a fact of life. Sooner or later, someone, maybe not an advertising claim, but somebody is going to cause a dispute and at least threaten to sue you at some point. So, yeah, but especially in advertising, you know, class actions over false advertising, particularly in states like California and New York, uh the plaintiffs lawyers recognize there's huge money-making opportunity even if you settle a lot of cases for a little bit of money, you can you can make a good living doing that and the the more success they get, the more they want to keep doing it. So a long way of saying to answer your question like litigation is just a constant machine and even though cases might not always make the headlines they're always ongoing and that's just the ones we know about like we have no way of knowing how many things settle privately before the lawsuits even filed so it's it, it's a certainly something to to be aware of and it's a mistake to think that you're too small or not prevalent or prominent enough to find yourself on the receiving end of something
1: yeah Yeah, it's kind of frightening.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's like there's pros and cons to the fact that eventually you get used to it. The first time being sued is scary, especially depending on you know what the claim is. But like pretty much everybody is going to get an ADA demand letter if their website's not accessible. That I hear from people every single day asking what they're supposed to do about that. But you know, eventually you do get used to it, and especially. I mean, hopefully, you don't get sued so much that you're completely jaded to it. Especially if you have an attorney that you like working with and that you trust, that can go a long way to sort of easing the anxiety over figuring out
1: what's what's really serious and what isn't. What are, What are some of the most uh, like common issues that you're helping brands or agencies or influencers? Because you work across, uh, or just your clients in general. What What are the common themes with regards to like where there's litigation?
0: Yeah, so I think if you're, if I were to break it down into really broad categories, one would be complying with federal and state consumer protection laws that have to do with advertising. So something as simple as you made a claim in one of your ads that isn't true, some more nitty-gritty rules around the mechanics of running an e-commerce brand, like are, am I advertising a subscription in the way that makes sense? Can people cancel the way the law says I have to? Um, am I shipping things on time? What am I doing with user reviews? What am I doing with testimonials? Things like that. So that, that sort of regulatory compliance is one piece of it. And then the other piece has to do with IP issues in terms of using influencers or soliciting and using UGC or repurposing a review can touch on IP issues uh, sourcing content for your website and things like that. those are. It's very common for disputes to happen there. And one of the ways I help avoid those is making sure that you have the, the kinds of agreements in place with whoever the other party is so that one, you can avoid the situation hopefully altogether. And two, if, if a situation comes up, you can resolve it more quickly if you have the right
1: Arguments. That makes sense. And just explain the levels of policy, right? Because you have ad platform specific policies, right? But then you have FTC policies. Are there other policies? And and are there any instances where platform and FTC kind of conflict? Like, what's the hierarchy? Because you know it's one thing abiding by the policies it's nothing knowing them right that's that's half
0: for challenge yeah and that's sort of how i think about what i do broadly is like in order to assess what kind of ri- assess what kind of risk you're comfortable with as a business you need to know what the risk is first and then you can decide if it's something that you're worth taking a risk that's worth taking or not but to your question it's not like there's an exact hierarchy but You have policies, whether it's a platform policy or maybe your payment processor has their own set of rules for certain things. Those don't have the force of law. It's not like the government can come after you or something or or a private consumer usually if you're violating some platform. It's a a contract issue between you and that platform or that payment processor or whoever it is. It can have very real impacts on your business for sure. But it's not like it's illegal to violate Facebook's terms je- if that's the only thing that's you're doing wrong, if it's not otherwise illegal. Then you have uh, state laws that are enforced by various agencies like the Attorney General. And then uh, sort of on top of that, you have federal laws that are enforced By the ftc and the ftc's own rules that they enforce and those things apply nationwide so that's sort of how you how i guess if you had to set up a hierarchy it's like the ftc applies to pretty much anything you're doing in or directed to the us then you have to worry about what you're directing to or doing in certain states and then you should think about the policies of the various platforms or other uh, service providers that you're using
1: and for the ftc again maybe an obvious question but i'd love to unpack it a bit more like philosophically what's guiding their policies it's a great question
0: if you took their policies at face value and over time the parts of their policy statements that have been consistent is that part of their mission at least with respect to advertising issues is that consumers should know when they're being advertised to and they shouldn't be deceived by advertising in a way that harms them. That, that's why we have their rules about disclosure on social media, like you should know something is an ad so that you can make that purchasing decision with complete information and you're not going to be misled or something like that. Historically, I'll try not to go off on too much of a tangent here, but historically the FTC's policy statement about enforcement included language about balancing the risk to consumers or the harm that you're trying to avoid with the burden that you're going to place on businesses if you enforce some rule that's going to make it either impossible or too costly to do business. Like, we're not out to just punish businesses is what they used to say. Under the current administration, which has received a lot of internal and external criticism, they changed one of their policy statements to remove that piece about considering the impact on businesses, which really gives the impression taken together with their the last few years of their enforcement that they don't really care about ensuring that businesses can compete fairly among each other and and can actually engage in business without these sort of oppressive rules. It's sort of like we advocate for consumers only and and the rest of it, if you can't comply too bad. So they, they seem more like plaintiff's lawyers for consumers than what's supposed to be this regulatory agency that's doing this balancing. So... It remains to be seen how far they'll go with that under the current regime and, and what happens from there. But what they're supposed to do is make sure that people understand when they're being advertised to and what those ads say
1: and enforce and come up with rules that achieve that. I'm a, I think I remember you posting about that, the removal of that, which is a little bit of a, a daunting thing, right? When it's just like, we actually don't care.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's an odd choice. It'd be one thing to just in, if you if you enforce the policies in a way that looks like that, it's another thing to consciously choose to remove that language. I don't I don't know what other message you could send than we don't care about businesses if you do something like that. So it was, it was really a weird
1: move. So um you know across the the cross section of people who are what's the best way of putting this? maybe either looking for opportunities to uphold policies or looking for opportunities to sue be it FTC, be it consumers, be it brands against other brands. Is there a most common path of where, uh, of kind of like litigation for lack of a better phrase? Like, like where do these mainly, things come from? Yeah, is it like who's enforcing it mainly? Is it disgruntled consumers? Is it the FTC? Is it brand to brand? I guess it depends on like the the theme, right? I guess brand to brand is mainly copyright, FTC is consumer issues. But what's the most what's the most common? In terms of
0: volume of lawsuits filed, it has to be consumer class actions because the plaintiffs are in it. And in that context, it's it's not often the case that those, well, let me rephrase that. Very often, those cases don't originate because a dissatisfied consumer reaches out to an attorney and wants to weigh their options. What a lot of these plaintiff's firms do is they will look over an FTC rule or a state statute or something like that try to identify what conduct they notice in the marketplace might be violating that statute, scour the internet for brands or other businesses that are violating it, and then they'll come up with their theory of the claim that might work as a class action, and then they'll find a consumer to match the case they've already built up. So you'll see those ads, like there's one running right now, like are you a a man who's used Bumble in the last three years, you might be entitled to compensation or something like that. They're running them for the Udemy class action. And what they're doing there is they already have an idea of, we may have already had a draft lawsuit written, and they just need someone who fills out that form that meets the criteria that did, in fact, buy whatever it is, and and then they're good to go. So many of those class actions are lawyer-driven because there's such an enormous financial incentive for the lawyers who bring those cases. Complaints wind up in front of the FTC complaints that lead to enforcement actions through a variety of channels. Probably the most common one, I don't have the data on it, but if you start to amass a lot of negative reviews on sites like the Better Business Bureau or Trustpilot, and you're not responding to those disgruntled customers, that's a very common avenue for something to get on the attention uh, to get the attention of a regulator like the FTC or, or a state attorney general. They also do their own independent investigations and sweeps. And and sometimes it's, it, it's hard to tell where it came from. It might have just been a consumer tip or uh, a referral from some other agency or something like that. But letting a lot of negative reviews, especially if they're about the same thing, like I never received this item or I didn't realize I signed up for a subscription, that's much greater likelihood there that, That something would become an enforcement action. And then from competitors, sometimes it's copyright issues, trademark more commonly, and sometimes it's just false advertising. There's a federal law that allows competitors to sue each other for false advertising claims. So like if your brand says that you're the number one selling product in the category, and I know that's not true, I can sue you under the Lanham Act for false advertising. That's just one example. So those sort of comparative claims are, are where you want to pay attention to that. If you're, if you're saying, you know, we outsold this brand or we're 20% better for you or, or whatever that sort of comparison claim is, those are the sorts of issues that can generate a Lanham
1: Act false advertising claim from one of your competitors. I think we've probably all seen uh, the, the one that springs to mind by Rick's McDonald's or Burger King, where it's like our burger's this big and it's actually that big.
0: Yeah, I mean, Burger King is dealing with a class action about that exact claim as we speak. So I feel like they're always going because that adds it, then adds a never representative of how the food comes. It's It's similar to that Taco Bell one that I tweeted about that a bunch of
1: people saw. Yeah, I saw that one as well. Cool. This is super helpful. I I think and maybe there's no easy answer for this and maybe it's actually just following people like you and having a really good attorney, right? But probably for any brand listening to this, right? You you don't, I don't know. Most people aren't trying to break policy. Most people are trying to run really good businesses. So I, I think the, I don't think there's generally ill intent or like a real serious desire to break boundaries, right? Because people are generally aware of probably like just what's right and wrong. Don't make false claims. You know, there's there's certain things you don't do. Don't copy trademarks, but there's some gray areas. So like outside of of following people like yourself, what are the best resources or ways to make sure that your business is kind of compliant and doesn't fall foul to some of those things that could be deemed gray areas within these within these policies and laws? Yeah, it's difficult to do. And I think that's part of why my
0: consent does well is because there's not that many digests that are available from from someone who has any authority to talk about it. Like sometimes there'll be uh, websites like the TCPA compliance guide and it's put out by some brand and it's like, how do I know that their interpretation of the law is correct? There's not really a lot of good resources that can summarize these often very lengthy confusing even to attorneys sometimes documents in a way that's useful so if if you don't have the benefit or availability of speaking with an attorney to discuss these issues there's not that much else other than you know the FTC has all of their policy documents and in some cases they have put together like FAQs about how to comply with certain things like they have this document about uh, their endorsement guides that that has I don't know 50 or so questions try to cover a lot of ground so that you can understand how the policies work in practice. But other than that, I don't really have a good answer that I could recommend for, you know, I'm concerned about this area of the law. What do I need to know? And, And part of that is because understanding whether a certain policy or law or rule applies to you in the first place and then whether you are... Uh, conducting business in a way that presents risk, it's so individual and fact-specific that it's hard to summarize some of these things. Some stuff's pretty easy, like some of the false advertising claims are, are not that complicated. But if you get into things like, sometimes the uh, the claims around like, or the, the rules around, advertising something as being eco-friendly or even recyclable can vary a lot state to state jurisdiction to jurisdiction and then areas other than what i cover like privacy for example is like impenetrable it's it's so confusing and so difficult that i unfortunately i don't have a good answer to what you can do other than speak with
1: an attorney about it. And follow you on Instagram and Twitter, which is probably what most DTC brands at least are doing, right? One area, you know, with the growth of AI and and its specific use within powering marketing, both from a creative, from a copywriting perspective, you know, we've all seen the deep fake videos. I mean, I saw one on YouTube the other day maybe I might insert into the YouTube clip of this it was Donald Trump who says you know outrageous things anyway but it was outrageous and there was no way other than the fact that it was so outrageous like common sense prevails and thinks no even I know but I've seen other you know other things Joe Rogan in ads yep I'm going to mention that yeah so there's that aspect of it there's also the aspect of you know and maybe some of this is my uh, as much as we're getting to you know, grips with trying to be ahead of the curve on usage of AI, like copywriting aspects within people using the same prompts. Like there's only so many prompts you can use. There's going to be duplications of content potentially. What's your take on that? Where do you see that going? That to me, Provides a significant level of complication. I'm sure it's a big talking point within these police within the policymakers, and and with your ecosystem. Yeah, I mean, there, there's so many angles to come at
0: AI from. I think sort of as a general matter. Similar to with Web three and the NFT craze, there's a lot of people out there who claim to be experts about it. All of a sudden, and there's a sense that because the technology is new, that it must be unregulated. So for a while, we can do whatever we want, and that's just not the case. Like the the laws apply to new technology is the same as as anything else. It's just how courts might interpret a new situation. We don't. We maybe don't know the specifics of every. Every situation, but it's not the case that like, oh, AI exists, so I can use deep fakes because it's new and there's no like federal AI law yet. That's true, but there there are still right of publicity laws and false endorsement laws and things like that that very neatly apply to those situations, like the the Joe Rogan deep fake and things like that. So from I think those issues are still are pretty clear cut in terms of publicity and endorsement and and things like that. What's up in the air or, or is working its way through the courts and the bodies that make the rules about it are things like who owns the output these machine learning programs and what happens to the content that you're sourcing to, to train these machines on and things like that, or there, there's not a lot of clarity there yet. We're getting there though. And in terms of what what do policymakers say about AI generally, we, we've had a few statements from the FTC talking about, they're concerned about businesses misrepresenting what AI can do. So if you say that, oh, you know, we our agency has this content creation that it uses AI to generate results, like you need to be pretty clear Understand internally how much you're actually using AI, how much it's involved in generating those results If the results are any better than not using AI, depending on how you're marketing it and things like that So don't like misrepresent what your tech can do or the results that it can deliver And then there's a concern about the effect of using AI in a way that can harm uh, disadvantaged sections of the community So if you have some sort of process that uses AI and the result of that is that maybe poorer people are, are treated less fairly as a result of whatever it is, the FTC understands that like the way that you train or program machine learning dictates in large part the effect of what it spits out. And so they want people to be careful about how they're training these things to make sure that the the results of using it aren't discriminatory in some way. Which So that's kind of like a vague answer to a bunch of aspects of it. But I guess it shows that yeah, AI has introduced a lot of uncertainty, but like
1: I said at the start, it's a mistake to think that that means there's no laws apply to it. Yeah, you're right cuz as well with the NFT, there was a whole thing about well the usage rights and like using the likeness of others in your own NFT art. And I guess uh I guess it's like a lot of it, I don't know, maybe my lack of understanding of the law, but really that I mean that Joe Rogan one is like that's on Joe Rogan right to see that and think no, 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 no. I'm going to come after that brand and either cease and desist them or sue them for using my likeness. Or if he's smarter, maybe get a rev share of, of the revenue as it performs.
0: Yeah. So in, in terms of the publicity rights issue, it's is, it's it's on him to decide whether he wanted to take some sort of action. The the video I'm thinking of was trying to advertise a brand that directly competes with Joe Rogan's nootropic line. So I I doubt he'd be very interested in like any sort of cooperation, but to enforce that particular right, that's on him. But it's possible that a consumer, a reasonable consumer saw that ad and thought, wow, if Joe Rogan endorses this and Andrew Huberman was also in the video, then that endorsement matters to me. I wouldn't have bought this product if I knew the truth that this was fake so I have a false advertising claim because I was deceived by this so you could imagine uh, a lawsuit materializing that way or from a regulator that says like the FTC says like this is this is deceptive advertising under section 5 of the Act and we want to put an end to it and you you need to pay back everything that you made uh, that you can attribute to that ad. So it's not it's not just that the person in that context whose image or likeness you're using, they're the only people that could have an issue. And related to that, uh, something that I hear a lot both on Twitter and, and elsewhere is like, well, if we, if we use someone else's content that we're not allowed to or we took their image, then we'll just take it down if they get upset. Or if they send us a demand letter, we'll just, we'll pay them something small to make it go away. They might not want that. That might not be enough for them. And there's, there's nothing that requires someone to send you a demand letter before suing you. It's common, but some, you might find out that you have a dispute when you're served with that lawsuit. So yeah, it's, it's worth getting an attorney's opinion on Whatever course of action you're you're trying to take if
1: if you want to understand what the potential repercussions of that are. Is there a difference, therefore, if that is an ad? So we're talking about ads, whereas you know our sending of ads, which is pretty ov- a pretty obvious one is we're spending money to run an advertisement that drives to a landing page to drive a sale. So that that Joe Rogan form for example you mentioned a couple of different ways that that could open up litigation if that were just if that was just posted on a social media page with no ad money behind it is is this, is the same potential of litigation still open Yeah. If if
0: it's just, let's say it's that brand that created that video and they just sort of organically post it on their TikTok or their Instagram, that's still advertising as far as the law is concerned. It doesn't matter if dollars were spent behind it. It doesn't matter if you put the sponsor tag on it or buy media for it or whatever. Any sort of content that promotes a product or brand is advertising, period. So... It's, that's another common misunderstanding is like, this is a little bit different context, but I'll see brands will get tagged in something on Instagram, for example, and then they'll repost whatever that content is, assuming like, hey, we're, this isn't an ad, we're just reposting it and, and this person already tagged us, so we have the right to do that and that, that is not the case and you're opening yourself up to copyright and potentially publicity rights lawsuits doing that and those are filed every single day.
1: Yeah, that's most brands do that. and. and- Tagged content posted into the stories. So what you're saying is if I post a story with a product and they repost me on their IG story, I could potentially sue them for using my content without prior permission or compensation.
0: Potentially, yeah. Unless you have some sort of agreement with the brand where you authorize them to use it in the way that they're doing, then yes, you would potentially have claims against that brand.
1: And that's, that's how that plays out. Interesting. What's one thing that you know, that you're surprised more people don't know when it comes regulations with advertising and, and marketing? Yeah, now, now that I just mentioned that
0: last piece, I realized that was going to be my answer. Just a misunderstanding of what you can do with content that exists online. Some i hear from some people that they assume that If content is posted on a public social media page, then it's in the public domain and it can just be used. But public domain is a term that has a really specific meaning in the context of copyright, and it doesn't mean information that's accessible. So in in the absence of some kind of agreement with whoever created the content or media that you're using in any way promoting your brand, you need to be careful about clearing the rights to that. Tagging doesn't confer any rights, um, using a hashtag doesn't confer any rights like that. So th- that uh, a lot of brands are surprised to learn that. Yeah, I think I think most will be. It it's inferred rights, isn't it? If I'm going to tag, tank- yeah, it seems like there's this implication that uh, by doing this, I, I, uh, this person should be okay. They love the brand, wouldn't they love to be featured? Um, but that's just not the case. Especially if, well, not especially, but I mean, one of the reasons could be that person who posted that content, like more than just their, it depends on the context, but if I'm a photographer and part of my business is doing e-commerce or or commercial photography, maybe I will post something and tag the brand as like an example of what I could do, hoping that they'll reach out and and then want to negotiate something with me. And then I, I really will have not just like a, what you might think of as a frivolous claim, like a gotcha copyright thing, but yeah, this is hurting my brand and, and I am losing out on potential revenue that I would where I'd otherwise license this content. So yeah, it, it's certainly a trap that a lot of brands fall into and don't realize until they contact me or someone like me with, hey, I got served with this lawsuit, what do I do? What's
1: the most outrageous lawsuit you've seen or, or been a part of?
0: Yeah, I was trying to think of an answer to both of those. In the advertising context, one of my favorite all-time ridiculous lawsuits, someone had sued, I can't remember if it's Kellogg's or, or Post or General Mills or whoever makes Captain Crunch, but Captain Crunch had, uh, maybe they still do, Crunch Berries, Captain Crunch flavor. And this person sued alleging that they, they didn't realize that there was no fruit in Crunch Berries. If they had known that, then they wouldn't have bought it. And that was one of the rare cases where the, the judge dismissed the case, I think even even earlier than than most of these sorts of claims are dismissed. And there's like a line from the court that says, like, the court is not aware of any fruit called a crunchberry that naturally grows anywhere in the world. And so like, case dismissed. It's like a classic example of a frivolous case. One that I worked on, I mean, there there's so many there. When people don't have lawyers and they file lawsuits, you can expect a lot of absurd claims. But there's one case I was working on at my previous firm that was uh, we were representing a reality TV star and they had been sued for defamation and assault. And the claim was that this TV star threw a chair at another cast member. And so part of analyzing that claim was watching that episode of this kind of ridiculous reality show, like very closely to see if the chair was dropped or whether it was thrown and then doing research about that and, and assault law. So I was sitting in, sitting in the office of that firm watching reality TV for a couple of days very, very closely. We ended up winning and, and the, it was not an assault. So it was worth all that time watching TV. Amazing. That's not what you'd expect lawyers to be doing, watching reality no, TV. No, it's especially not, it's not what I usually was doing
1: there either. <laughs> Amazing. Um, I like to think future state often with things and any anybody get that I get on, what big changes or changes do you foresee in the future of kind of policy and regulations when it comes to advertising? Or are we long enough in the tooth now? Outside of like new tech, like AI that needs specificity, but are we are we too long in the tooth now when it comes to advertising that the foundation has been built, it's tweaks and iterations? It's hard to say. We have sort of a, a preview of coming attractions from, from
0: the FTC in the States that, from the FTC's as an example, they periodically will announce new rulemaking. They say, here's we want to make a rule so that we have better or harsher penalties and better enforcement tools for a, specific, for a particular section of conduct. So right now they're proposing more rulemaking around using customer reviews. Um, and that in- includes things like uh, buying fake reviews, not disclosing payment for reviews, suppressing negative reviews, Uh, Things of that nature. So we know that that is going to continue to be a priority. And I wouldn't be surprised if other states follow suit on that. Privacy is still huge. And there's constantly new, either entirely new laws or revisions to existing ones coming out, especially with respect to children's privacy. And that seems to be the biggest push right now across the states is uh, addressing advertising to children and how children interact with social media and what they do online from both privacy, advertising to them, what kind of content they're Permitted to view and things like that. So I would say that's probably the the biggest trend we'll continue to see is attention to advertising to children and
1: those issues. Which is not not a bad thing, not a bad place to focus efforts.
0: No, I, the the trouble is ensuring that or or trying to ensure that the laws we write don't accidentally do the opposite of what they're intended to do. So like some of these privacy laws that are supposed to protect children actually require giving up more personal information than beforehand. And they that's bad for children. It's bad for all users of the internet. It's very hard for businesses of all sides to all sizes to comply with. So certainly a noble goal, but it, it I wish the legislatures would be more careful about how they draft these things. So that they're achieving that uh, goal without actually making it worse.
1: Yeah. Yeah, makes sense. Maybe you should help them write the policies. There's also in a sense of being out of touch with policymakers versus the day to day, right? The actual usage of these platforms. That's true, and it's at the legislature level, and then also
0: the judges that we're asking to be up to speed on all this technology and and understand what a reasonable consumer using TikTok might expect. It's it might not be every judge has that kind of experience to make that call, but I don't think I'm I'm the right guy to help write policy. There are there's some scholars and legal professors that pay very close attention to this stuff, especially the privacy things I spoke about. There's a professor named Eric Goldman who's got an excellent blog that I would recommend to everybody who's really on top of all that. I agree with all of his takes that I've read about this these Proposed drafts and how they're going about writing these laws and things like that. If I had to pick somebody to write the statutes, I'd pick
1: him. Okay, Nice. I'll I'll link it out in the in the newsletter as well. I'll find it, um, Robert. I've learned a lot, and someone who's been in the advertising marketing space since two thousand and four. You know, I think like you have a you have a general sense as to overarching policies, but the, they're often guided by platform policies, right? Because that's the world you're operating in, and they're a bit more accessible. So I think I love and learn a lot from following you on social media. And I've learned a lot today, even kind of like piquing my interest. It's like, oh, I didn't quite know that point. or there's a sub point to the main point. So, you know, as of anything, especially something as complex as this, there's no single page you can go to and learn everything. So I think it's like using common sense oftentimes, but if in doubt, get an attorney and, and follow follow you on social
0: media. <laughs> I appreciate it. I try to stay current and pick things that people will find
1: interesting and hopefully relevant. Amazing. I'll link it again in the podcast, but what's the best way to follow you and find you if people have questions? Yeah, I'm, I'm
0: more active on Twitter than anywhere else right now, at Robert Freund Law. Um, same username on Instagram. Then I have my website where you can book a consultation and get my email address and stuff like that. And that's robertfreundlaw.com.
1: Robert, really appreciate you being on. Thank you so much for all the knowledge, um, keeping us compliant, and, and for making time today. Really appreciate your time. Yeah, thanks for having me. This is fun.